Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and football finance expert at Liverpool University, Kieran Maguire. Hello Kieran, how are you? I'm, I'm good. Uh, the, the, we're recording quite early today, so the dog's a bit upset because he's not been taken for his constitutional walk yet, so he's, he's kicking off a bit. But other than that, all is tickety-boo and counting down to the return of football. Yeah, I, th- I think you'll find dogs have less concept of time than you imagine they do, Kieran, really. If, if you're up, he wants to be out, essentially is what it is. That's um, right. Uh, now, Kieran, I was hoping that, like the Simpsons, we could start this by going three days mistake-free, but um, we did uh, casually mention that uh, Wickham uh, were promoted, and they're not. They're in third place, which means they're in the playoffs, and uh, it's nice that, once again, thousands of people pounced on a tiny mistake in a free podcast, um, but we'll make sure it doesn't happen again, Kieran, won't we? Well, it, it was my mistake. Hold my hands up. Um, it, it's uh, it, it does actually take a fair bit of time to uh, to research these shows. Yeah, but it was a schoolboy error. Schoolboy error. Um, um, I'm uh, I'm totally guilty on that one. Yeah, let's be fair. If it was my mistake, I wouldn't have mentioned it, would I? Um, <laughs> uh, now, this I'm, I'm reading this bit out as I do. I do research. I write the questions down, but. Um, my eyebrows raised old-timey when I saw this, because later on we'll be hearing from Darren uh, Balkum of the Sussex Police. Uh, you kept that quiet, didn't you? Is he a, a mate of yours? He's a, he's a big fan of the podcast. Uh, really? he, he says he listens to it, as do, as do quite apparently quite a few police forces up and down the country, especially those who are, are either you know, in cars or working you know, strange shifts. Uh, we, are a, we are a welcome alternative to uh, late-night radio uh, and Paul Ross. <laughs> that's uh, that's damning with the faintest of praise, isn't it? It's <laughs> better than Paul Ross. I'm going to put that on the poster. Uh, bless him. Um, yeah, so Darren's been part of the team policing Brighton Games uh, for quite some time. Uh, we'll be talking to him, or you'll be talking to him. I won't. He's a Brighton policeman. About how to force a planning for the return of, of football, and then later on for the return of football fans. Uh, and I feel on a bound as a Palace fan. I'll only say this once. I hope it doesn't involve taking photographs with fake weapons caches. You can Google that, people. Um, but before that, it's Questions Day, and it's our first ever Chris special. We've got a lot of Chris's today, just either by pure coincidence or Guy's been planning uh, a rare 
moment of surprise for us all. He's been saving up all the Chris questions and throwing them in. But um, there's a lot of Chris's, and I apologise to those of you who are not Chris. And the first Chris is Chris Fenland. Now, this is a, an interesting question, uh, Kieran, because it, it follows on from something we've been talking about a lot recently, which is, is that the dog letting itself out? That is the dog letting himself in. <laughs> Oh, I wish we had photographic proof for that. That's a, that a clever dog, isn't it? Okay, yeah, he well, is. He's, 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 how, a, he's a working dog. That's why he's... Uh... Yeah, careful. Um, that's how we could make money off this pod, just getting the old dog to do tricks for cash. Um, now, we have spoken a lot about clubs relying on loans from owners and directors recently, Kieran, with uh, a 0% interest rate. So, which, as Chris points out, allowing for inflation, that means that the owners and the directors lose money on these loans. But are there any owners or directors out there who actually set out to make a profit on loaning money to their clubs by charging interest above the rate of inflation? Uh, yes, there are. Uh, I mean, yeah, we, we have mentioned uh, yeah, Roman Abramovich, Mike Ashley, uh, even Bet365. Clearly at Brighton, we've got Tony Bloom. Um, people who have put in large sums of money. Uh, whilst they are loans, they're not they're not sort of standard loans because there's no fixed repayment date, um, which is uh, which is not something you'd normally expect from your bank. Uh, but in terms of other clubs, um, sometimes the the owners and directors have used the club as, as a means of, of generating income. So if we take a look at West Ham, uh, David Gold and David Sullivan, they lent the club forty five million pounds in in twenty eleven. Um, and they've charged bef- between four and a half and six and a half percent interest. I think four and a quarter and a half percent, six and a half percent interest. So they've actually earned around about eighteen million pounds in interest since they acquired the club in I think it was 2010, 2011, sometime around that period. Um, yeah, it, it's it's not a huge sum of money um, by if compared to um, com- compared to what the club generates. Um, it, it's, it is a huge sum of money compared to how much money we make from this podcast. So, you know, it, it's somewhere in between. Um, and I think that has provoked a, a bit of uh, antipathy from the West Ham fans because the owners have said, we've never taken a pay- penny out of the club in wages or, d- yeah, or yeah. dividends. And that is technically correct. But how you get the money out of the club is, uh, is perhaps less important than the fact that they have taken it out. Um, if you go to QPR, um, they they had uh, owners from overseas uh, who lent the club £46 million and, and they, they were charging 1% interest a month on part of those loans and 2% interest a month on the remainder. So that worked out as around about 26.8%. So clearly those, those are credit card rates on money lent to a football club. Um, so you've, you've got to go through the small print and it, and it really does vary. Um, and, and sometimes the banks lend money to clubs, as we know as well. So it, it really does vary. And of course, you know, we, we started off this show um, talking about Berry, uh, you know, the best part of a year ago. And they were being lent uh, money by a company called Capital Bridge Finance Solutions. And there's lots of allegations, and we don't know how true these are. And I'm not going to say one way or the other in case I get it wrong. I don't want to make Chris cross. Um, and um, that that was that's a proper teacher's joke, isn't it? It, just, um, it certainly is. <laughs> um, and, and that was as an eye-watering 138% a year. Wow. But it's... Um... For the most part, though, owners and directors don't get into football as a way of making money by loaning money to the club, do they? It's just that just happens a bit further down the line when the club gets into financial trouble. Because it strikes me that 
as you say, these are huge amounts for the average person listening to this, but not for some of the very wealthy people who own clubs. Oh, exactly, exactly. So I think they normally come into the club, um, and it, and it's a common mistake. And sort of, I think it's probably linked to one of our later questions, with the view that I've been successful in my present line of business. I see that football's a bit of a mess. I have the skills to turn it round. So therefore, they buy the club, they buy the shares in the club, um, and then twelve months later, they realise that they're not as good as turning around a football club as they thought they are. It's making huge losses, and, and the only way to uh, to cover those losses is to start lending the club money, and and you then start to put you know, you start to lend good money after bad. It's amazing that successful businessmen are still doing that, considering there's a hundred and fifty year history of football being completely different as a business to any other business. They still come in and think, as Simon Jordan did, that there'll be transferable skills from his mobile phone company that he'll, he can, you know, suddenly will start calling fans, clients, customers. We'll all make a lot of money. But it just, it simply is like no other business, isn't it, really? I suppose the entertainment business is the closest model to it. I mean, there, there are two good ways of losing money. And one is buying a football club and one's buying a theatre, essentially. Yes, I think there's probably a bit of an overlap in that they're both talent-based industries. Um, they're both not open 365 days a year. Yeah. Um, and, and people do, do think that you know, if you are successful, you tend to have a high opinion of yourself because you've proven to be successful. And therefore, perhaps um, you think that you, you can do, you do have the Midas touch in football, um, which which is a rarity. Yeah, Um uh, Mrs. Day, who, as you know, works in the theatre when the theatre is available, would probably like me to point out that most theatres do open 365 days a year, unless <laughs> unless forced not to, uh, because that would be a real model for, for, for losing money, just deciding not to open on Tuesday and Thursday. We won't have a play today. We'll, we'll, we'll save it for Wednesday. Um, Christopher Habib, and this is a sort of follow-on question. Hello, Christopher. Um, it's a natural follow-up question, actually. Is buying a football club ever a good investment? Uh, yes, it is. Um, if, if you're buying a football club, which is a brand as well. Um, so if we take a look at the case of the Glazers and Manchester United, they, they bought the club for £700 million using the club's own money. And um, if they sold it today, I mean, its market value is around about two and a half, two to two and a half billion. Um, if, if they wanted to to sell it to a single owner, uh, they'd certainly make a, a huge return on that. So, but Man- Manchester United is 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 a football club which has, as we know, is a very successful commercial division. Um, it, it qualifies for the Champions League on a regular basis, and that, and that's where the money is. Um, commercial deals in the Champions League are the most lucrative elements within football. So. Uh, the people at FSG, uh, John Henry's bunch, who who own uh, Liverpool, uh, they bought Liverpool for yeah, less than ten years ago, I think. Uh, now, for around about three hundred million, uh, they they'd get five or six times their their investment. But on the on the majority of football clubs, as as we've just been indicating, uh, if if you talk to to Ellis Short um, at at Sunderland, he effectively wrote off the thick end of a. Hundred and fifty million pounds when he walked away from the club. The same, same with Randy Lerner. Uh, clearly, you, you, you know, Mark Goldberg and Simon Jordan had bad experiences at Palace from a financial yeah. point of view. Um, and uh, I, I've spoken to one or two owners uh, over the course of the past few weeks, uh, and uh, the, the the universal response would be, 
if, if I can get somebody to take this off my hands today, I don't want to see the club go under, but they can have it for a quid. Uh, yeah. you know, it's cost me a fortune and um, I'm, I'm desperate to get rid because the, the ongoing costs are, are prohibitive. You know, we, we've, we've looked at the numbers. You know, two-thirds of the clubs are losing money. Uh, once you drop out of the, the, the Premier League, those, those losses uh, in, in the championship are just uh, crazy for, for small businesses. You mentioned a few weeks ago, Kieran, that um, West Ham had a couple of very big offers and the club decided not to sell and were holding up for more. Do Will people at Liverpool, Man City, Man United, are they modelling these things all the time to go, all right, the club is now currently worth £3 billion. It's never going to be worth more than that. Now's the time to cash in. Or, or are they always simply waiting and assuming that the club will earn more and more money as season goes by? Um, they're, they're constantly receiving pitches. There's, there's normally an investment banker or two or a broker who will be sending in emails, often on spec, saying, I've got an interested party who's willing to pay X. And the vast majority of the times, the the, uh, the finance director or the chief executive will just put it in a delete file. Um, they, they are monitoring. Uh, if, if somebody comes in with a with an offer which is going to blow them out of the water, then uh, then they're, they're duty bound to investigate uh, in in their own interests and, and that of the club as a whole. Um, I, I think that that uh, the West Ham owners probably regret not taking the eight hundred million pounds that, uh, that, that, according to Karen Brady's website, that they uh, they were offered a few years ago. Uh, given that uh, you know, clearly we're in the pandemic now and they've not really managed to turn West Ham into a cash cow as a result of the move to the uh, to the London Stadium. OK, next question from the next Chris. Uh, this is a, an interesting question, Kieran. It's, it's not something I'd ever really considered before, but uh, Chris Foster's question is, uh, academy players in Premier League teams earn, and I quote, far more money than a teenager needs, uh, from which I infer that Chris isn't a teenager. Um, but he'd, he'd like your opinion on, on an academy salary cap because it would prevent the bigger clubs hoovering up players because why would they leave if they're going to get the same amount of money at, at Liverpool as they would at Bournemouth, for example? And it could generate a bigger transfer fee for a club like Bournemouth later on. It's, that's an, quite an interesting concept, actually, isn't it? It, it is, um, but a lot would depend on where that cap is. Um, if, if you look at uh, League One and League Two, uh, you've, you've got uh, you've, you've got academy players who might be on two hundred pounds a week. So if you set the cap for a thousand pounds a week, it would still be very attractive to go from you know Morecambe or Macclesfield, you know, to a, even to a Championship club. If, if you're going to, you know, you could treble, quadruple your in- income quite easily. So I think we've got to be careful with with caps. And also what you do find with issues such as um, salary caps is that our silver-tongued friends get involved and they find ways around them. So um, it could be that uh, an academy player might be offered um, the the, the cap of, let's say it's going to be £500 per week. Um, but on top of that, the the club offers to put him into a private school to pay for his education. Right. Uh, I'm also aware of one high profile player who's who's at a Premier League club who came through the academy system, and um, the the club you you can't pay um, youth team players uh, money. But what the club did was that it got the uh, it got the manufacturers of the club kit. To give the kids' parents jobs, yeah. So 
the the more you go into this, you know, if 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 organisations want to get around the rules, they they will find their way around the rules. Um, and, and then, of course, there's issues such as you know, what do you do with somebody such as Wayne Rooney? You know, Wayne, Wayne Rooney came onto the scene at the age of 16. He was playing in the Premier League um, at Everton. You know, he, he had that amazing debut. Was his debut where he scored that goal against Arsenal? Arsenal yeah. uh, you know, clearly, he was he was a very talented player. If if you were to say, well, the the, uh, the academy cap is 500 pounds per week. And then you've got somebody with the the talent of Wayne Rooney sitting in a changing room with players, and, and the average wage at Everton's around about seventy grand a week. Yeah, that's that seems to be an inconsistency. So, yes, I, I can see some merit in it, um, but it, it as often with these things that they they do create further complications. Yeah, I don't think there's a football fan listening to this. I don't care where they are in the world who won't have been in a pub sometimes and heard somebody say that they'd heard through the taxi driver who took the cousin of the 13 goalkeeper to a party that a 14-year-old's parents had been bought a house. I mean, everyone, the, the rumours about how you get around these things go on. And the thing I always have to remind myself about salary caps, and I'm quite intelligent, is that it's it's not a minimum wage and it's not what they're all paid so you sometimes you assume oh, there's a thousand pound salary cap that they're all being paid a thousand pound and of course that isn't true that's the most it's simply the most you can pay isn't it very much so um and if and if there's be if there's a salary cap should there also be a salary collar so therefore the, the players are guaranteed a minimum amount um, and, and if that was the case, it, it could mean that if, if you're looking at lower league clubs, they might simply turn around and say, well, we, we, we can't afford to run an academy team on, yeah. on that basis. Uh, I, th- I think the bigger issue for for clubs, uh, the, the lower league clubs, is that they're not being sufficiently rewarded for the development of players um, as a result of the elite player performance plan, which is something which we've discussed at least twice on the show, um, and it, and it allows the the larger clubs to effectively cherry pick talent, um, you know, which is coming through the ranks of Exeter and uh, Scunthorpe and so on. Uh, salary collar is that an official phrase or is that one of yours? No, no, that that is a that's an official phrase because if you go to the NFL um, it, and look at their pay system, um, they have both a salary cap and a salary collar, um, which uh, which which stops club owners from playing payers players from playing payers peanuts, which is difficult to say, um, and just creaming off all the money in, in the form of profits for themselves. And, and also, that's something we should always remember. If the money's not going to the player, it's going to be going to somewhere else. And as we've already established, you, you're not going to buy a football club unless you're a pretty wealthy individual to begin with. So isn't this simply diverting more money to the rich? Yeah. Um, I should just point out, you may have heard a, f- a vague squeaking noise in the background. There. That's my cat meowing. Your dog can open doors. My cat just came in to tell me that she chased a moth. She didn't catch it, <laughs> didn't catch it but she chased it and she's, she wants to be told how clever she is. And she's not. She's a dimwit, but she's beautiful and I love her. Uh, Chris Maguire, another Chris. Um, 
Uh, again, this is a subject we have talked about um, before, women's football, but not in as much detail as perhaps we would like to have done. And when women's football returns, I think we probably be, will be looking at doing a special. But Chris McGrath says Liverpool um, are on the brink of winning the Premier League in the men's game, but the women's team have just been relegated from the top flight um, after it was curtailed on a points-per-game basis. Their turnover, he says, is rumoured to be roughly about £1 million. Chelsea's apparently £3.3 million. They won the the title, Man City was second on a turnover of about £2 million. Um, Chris wants to know what clubs are paying or spending on their women's teams uh, and are we starting to see money buying success in the women's game as it sort of does in the men's game? Um, in, in respect to what are they spending money on, I mean, the, the, bit like the men's game, the majority of it goes on wages. Um, all the clubs in the WSL are losing money. The, the, the majority of them are losing between five hundred grand to a million pounds a year. Uh, I think the only club to uh, to have made a profit last year was Spurs, and that was a five grand profit. But you know, Spurs, in you know, Spurs are the club in in the Premier League who are very good uh, at breaking even or making money each year, and that applies to their women's team as as well. Um, it, it's, it, it is a challenge. Um, I, I was on uh, Talk Sport on on their uh, on the, on their women's football special show um, last last week, um, going through the numbers with them. And, and the trouble is, it's it's a, it's a catch twenty two situation. In order to attract more interest, you've you've got to have the best players. Clearly, that's going to cost money. That means you're going to lose money, um, and that makes it harder to 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 break even and, and generate more. So it it is a genuine challenge, um, and I am concerned at present that with the with the senior clubs, with the with the with the men's clubs who are effectively subsidising the women's clubs or the owners, if if the uh, if the men's clubs are looking to um, break even or or to, or to reduce their losses as a result of the coronavirus, um, are they going to reduce their investment in the women's team, which would be a real shame because there has been growth in the game. Uh, I know AFC filed, they they did uh, can off their, their women's team before reversing the decision. Um, Yeovil went into administration, their women's team, uh, around about a year ago and things of this nature. So it's uh, it, it's it's a tough industry uh, at present because you've you've got to get the interest from TV, um, and at present the the deals aren't great. Right now we've we've got a few more questions coming up, but before that it, it's time for a, uh, that chat with Darren Borkham of the Sussex Police, who Kieran went to talk to. Uh, I imagine some Sussex beauty spot just recently. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. We've got a, a special guest on the show today, and it's uh, Darren Balkum. Uh, Darren is the police liaison officer uh, for Sussex and Surrey, and uh, he's he's the man effectively in charge of policing for the matches uh, at Brighton. Uh, and, and it's uh, it's well known that I occasionally go there. So, first of all, Darren, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, Kieran. Thanks for having me on. I'm I'm doing great, Matt. Really, really good. Great. Uh, I mean, we've got. Is it four or five matches less now at the Amex? Um, what What are your plans in terms of uh, how the matches are going to be policed? Uh, you know, clearly it's behind closed doors. Um, is, is that going to be an additional challenge for you? Or are you assuming that everybody's going to be following orders uh, and just really have a, a skeleton presence there? Well, as you say, we've got five games left at the Amex. Uh, most teams in the Premier League have got four or five home games left. Um, quite big games, obviously, on paper. Arsenal, Liverpool, Man City, Man United, Newcastle. Uh, Any times those teams would come to a, a football stadium, uh, there would be big events. Um, but th- this is really, obviously, uh, uncharted waters in regards to uh, football and uh, going forward. The... Um, I've been doing football a little while and um, and we've got a plan which works, um, which we, we look at each each season. We look at after every game, so whether or not we can refresh and review certain aspects of it. But this is a, a totally blank canvas in regards to uh, football coming back. Um, it was always going to be a national uh, decision. Um, it wasn't a decision for Sussex Police. It wasn't a decision for Brighton of Albion. It was going to be discussed at a national level with our input um but quite rightly our our concerns and our um our areas that we need to look at are local so we will have discussions with the club um it effectively is their event it's a premier league to demonstrate to uh public health england and the government that running elite sport behind closed doors uh can work and they've had to go through a, a number of meetings uh, a number of measures uh which will be in place and then we knew at some point it would come down to a local level with the clubs and local police to discuss the way forward. So it, it's very much uh, a new thing. It's uh, I liken it to, and Brighton fans will, will be v- very aware of uh, the campaign to get the Amex, to get Falmer Stadium. Um, got the stadium now, just can't get in it. So there are a number of things that we hope the supporters will do to enable the government and Public Health England, uh, not just at football, but social distancing wherever, when other places are open, which will continue to address the uh, the infection rate uh, and sadly the, the death rate uh, to get it to a level where the government and uh, the experts, the scientists feel that the new normal can resume. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. And, and in terms of, of these matches which are taking place, do you, as a police liaison officer, will you be in touch with your colleagues from other forces? Uh, you know, will they be keeping an eye on, on a match day you know, from, say, from Liverpool, from Manchester, from Newcastle, wherever it's going to be, if they see what they consider to be a bunch of football fans perhaps heading off early in the morning? And, and would, therefore, you have to change your plans accordingly? We, we liaise with all other forces for every game uh, and, and that's a continual um, process, whether or not be behind closed doors or with a full stadium. Um, we've already liaised with all the five teams that, uh, that are coming down to the Amex, including the national unit who coordinate policing across the country. And we're, comf- we're confident that... Um, the measures that we will put in place um, from a national point of view and uh, from a football point of view, um, people will, will get, I don't think it's a matter of enforcing um, the, the enforcement was always the last option in regards to this uh, pandemic. It was more educational. It was more advising, advising people in regards to, uh, you know, what they're trying to do. And, and the main role for the police was to protect the NHS, to make sure that the infection rates didn't get to a level which overwhelmed the NHS. And that was our primary concern and our primary goal in everything we did. And we spoke to people out and about when people were out and about, and we explained to them why we were doing that. And, and most people got it, in fairness. Um, and we expect that with football fans as well. Football fans, um, the, the games will be on TV. Um, there'll be more football on TV in the next two to three weeks than ever, uh, including uh, free to air, which is which is great. Um, I, I don't envisage large number of fans uh, coming down for our games, and I'm speaking only for uh, for our uh, our area. Um, that being said, if people do, we do have the network of officers that work across the country, including British Transport Police, that can give us that information. Um, but the club. And the clubs themselves are now doing an awful lot of planning um, to go through their plans in regards to making sure that their areas are secure. Uh, it's, it's open knowledge that there are different zones which um, the clubs have to adhere to. And certain zones will be very, very difficult uh, or be as, as effective as um, I would suggest security at uh, at airports to, to get into. And quite rightly so, uh, to keep that bubble so that the games can be played. Brilliant. Brilliant. And just sort of in, in general, because you know, ultimately this is this is a finance show as much as anything else. Um, who who is responsible for the costs of policing uh, at matches? Because you know, I've read that there have been uh, is unhappiness expressed sometimes on both sides of the equation. Um, you know, so in in a, in a non pandemic season, um, where where do the costs go? Is it is it there? Is there does the club bear the cost inside the ground, outside the ground, things of this nature? Um, you know, because obviously from your point of view as as a police force, uh, it, it's a, it's an expensive event because you've got to uh, you've got to have officers who are allocated to uh, to patrolling for matches. Um, the the cost to uh, policing is always uh, one which is discussed at national level. However, the rules are currently as they stand is that the local forces agree what the footprint of the event is. Um, and the footprint is normally uh, determined on where a steward has primacy over in regards to um, authority, in regards to guiding spectators to the game. Um, so for the Amex, it's quite an easy footprint um, because we are surrounded by a major road. 
uh, a railway line uh, and a, a street. And then the rest of the area, which is the car parks in that area, it would be uh, down to the club to manage. So if we put officers on that area, which we agree with the club, um, they pay for those. Uh, towns and cities, for us, that is uh, a police cost um, that we would bear um, in regards to the the legislation for special police services. But we look at it, Kieran, to be honest, is we, we shouldn't have to put loads of officers on games because we should be doing the work beforehand with the clubs to make sure that their event is stewarded to the level which we would expect. Um, some games will have more police on than others and they are categorised for a reason. Um, but by and large, we've been able to reduce our footprint of officers by 5 to 10% each season while we're at the Amex because we are confident in the club's ability to manage their own event. Great, great. Um, so we, we've got these these matches remaining. Um, assuming that uh, you know, everything starts off OK, are, are you able to go inside the, the stadium? Will you be watching the matches? Uh, and if so, do you need somebody to carry your bags? <laughs> Kieran, I'll be nowhere near that stadium uh, in, inside. Um, the area inside the stadium um, is is for the club to manage. Um, we will have a presence around the stadium, not a big one, I might add, because we've obviously got to look at other aspects like the city. Um, I, I am anticipating at some point while these games go on that there may be a change in the uh, in the lockdown rules in regards to pubs. So being a seaside resort, that's our primary area um, and we need to link in with our licensing colleagues and uh, the landlords of the pubs, which are normally used on match day, um, to make sure that they've got plans in place um, which are, are fit and able, um, on, but be very cognizant that they have not been open for a long, long time and obviously the revenue that they've lost, they need to recoup. So unfortunately, Kieran, um, unless you're in Bennett's Field car park uh, from there, I don't think we'll be seeing the games. OK, right. And and just one final one. Um, as you know, uh, Bright, Brighton, and I've taken a lot of stick for this, um, Brighton are allowing cardboard cutouts um, of fans to attend matches. Will there be a cardboard cutout police officer to make sure that these uh, other fans behave themselves? Well, Kieran, as you know, I'm I'm not the tallest chap in the world. Um, so if a cardboard cutout is done, I'd want it at half price. And at least I'd probably be able to get a view uh, this time. But uh, it's an idea. Perhaps maybe one of the fans from Brighton who love me dearly would, would want to do that. Uh, but uh, I definitely won't be having a cardboard cutout. There'll be real ones outside, but we'll leave that to the club inside. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Darren, for that. Really appreciate it. No problem, Kieran. Take care. So that was, um, I, I caught the end of that, Kieran. That was, um, sounded quite interesting, the bits I heard from the Sussex Police. Uh, what did you take out of that? Um, well, they they are ta- they have got plans in place uh, for the matches taking place behind closed doors. Hmm. Uh, I think they're operating on the basis that football fans won't be idiots um uh, because they're not um yeah. and, uh, and and therefore they're not expecting many people if any to turn up um it will ver- very much vary from uh, stadium to stadium you know those which are more central to a city it gets slightly more complicated so if you're looking at a place like newcastle um yeah which is it which is you know 
plank in the middle of of the, of the city. Um, it's going to be a bit more of a challenge, but uh, they, they seem reasonably confident, and uh, yeah, they, they do try to have good relations with fans. Uh, because that that reduces conflict, um, and they seem to have relatively good relations with clubs as well. So it was it was quite a positive chat. I think it's one of the biggest changes for people of our generation, Kieran, the way football's policed. Because certainly thirty years ago, it, it wasn't they were the enemy. Essentially, they saw us the same way. Football fans were considered by the government, by the press, and by the police to be a hundred percent out for trouble, uh, and that tension created by them tended to cause a lot of the the, the trouble but the, in, in the last 20 years the idea of community policing I remember the first time as the two coppers from Croydon who started traveling on the specials and it made a big difference when you've got faces you can go to an away game if there's if something's going on you can turn to a friendly policeman um there is there is a slight worry I think about football fans I think that I think some football fans will turn up not about out of any malice but just out of enthusiasm and excitement Sellers Park uh, one of the problems with Sellers Park being an older stadium is that there are two places in the ground where there are there are gaps big enough in gates to be able to see the pitch, and I'm sure I'm sure one or two Palace fans will want to try and do that. So I don't know how far around the stadium the police will be putting cords, and you know it's it's highly unlikely that exuberant Liverpool fans won't want to be wherever they are when they win the title, and it and it. It won't be that they won't be to cause trouble. It will just be they want they want to be able to say that they were there on the on the on the on the area on the plot of land when it happened. So I, I suspect that will be an issue for the police, which which means, of course, that the, the the clubs will have to spend as much on policing games with no fans as they would on games with fans, isn't it? Um, I, I think if it's a high profile game, uh, as one as, as you mentioned, you know, it's, if it is, does it involve a club? Potentially winning a Champions League place, winning the league title, you know, the last day of the season, you know, if there's relegation and you're playing at home, you, you can understand that. Um, you know, the good thing is that all the matches are being televised. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, why, why go and congregate outside the ground? I think, I think what I would be concerned is if pubs close to the ground are showing the matches live, the match then finishes and people pile out and go, well, let's, let's just pop down and see if we can get a, a picture of the coach coming in or going out yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it, I, th- I think the police will be in a position where they will know where the pinch points are and will be able to provide, you know, to create barriers and, and uh, just have a, have a quiet word. But I, I agree entirely with you uh, in terms of the, the benefits of the, the new style of policing. Um, one of my uh, academic colleagues, a guy called Jeff Pearson, he's done huge research into how how policing has changed and, and the the impact comparing sort of the way we now are policing football in the UK to still some of the the, the more seventies style confrontational uh, approaches taken on the continent. Yeah, um, we should point out that pubs will probably be shut when uh, Liverpool win the title. But that's true. That's not a mistake by me. Well, no, the thing is, as well as we all know, anecdotally, something there's there's shuts and there's shut, isn't there? So, there, <laughs> yes, you know, there there will be. You you can always argue as a certain pub I know says that these people are all my family and friends. Officer having a private drink in a private house, but um, so yeah, problems. It's uh, for the for the most part in in. In Germany, fans have stayed away, and I think German fans of of all those in Europe are, are the closest to English fans in terms of passion and commitment and, and enthusiasm. So, I, I think most of English football fans will stay away. But I think just out of 
you know, it's the first time Liverpool have won the title in the Premier League, so you can understand it if there will be fans who just spontaneously decide that they want to be near. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on. So let, listen, we have got more questions, but we've run out of Chris's. So we've had to go for other names. So our next question is from Manuel Fernandez, who's in Brazil. Uh, I hope you're safe and well out there, Manuel. Uh, now, Manuel has been reading about La Liga's financial model, where they, they sort of effectively control the club's budget and wages. And he wants to know what you think about the, this version of financial fair play. Is it the best model, Kieran? Um, it's It's certainly... A different model, the way that it works in La Liga is that every time you're coming up to a transfer window, uh, the club is given a cost limit. Now, when we talk about costs, we're talking about the total spend, which is on, on players and coaches wages and transfers as well. So if you want to go and spend £80 million signing a player, then, then you've got to go and make sure that you cut your wages accordingly. Okay. Um, and and this, is, uh, this is called the economic control model. Um, it, it's created by independent analysts, um, and, and it does work to a, pretty well uh, in, in terms of good financial management. But the downside of that, and, and I went on to uh, some uh, some uh, fans' uh, forums to try to find out, to, to sort of gauge opinion, it does create resentment, uh, or further resentment, should I say, towards Barcelona and Real Madrid. Because if you think about it, those two clubs have automatically got more cut money coming in, historically, because they have been successful. And it means that trying to break through to be competitive um, is, is nigh on impossible. Uh, because the only way you can compete is to invest in players, and if that's set by your level of revenue and your your autumn, you, you're starting off three hundred million euros behind the two big Spanish clubs. Um, how can you genuinely compete um, in a way that we have seen with the likes of Manchester City and Chelsea here in the UK, and and how Newcastle fans are hoping will be the case um, should the PIF deal go through? So this is not a sort of NFL attempt to make sure there's a level playing field in, in Spanish football and make sure every club are competitive. This is just a way of making sure clubs comply with financial fair play, is it? That, that's right. So uh, instead of going from the, the break-even model that we have uh, in UEFA and in the Premier League, it, it is sort of it is squad cost-focused. Uh, um, and yeah, that, that has... That has benefits and and drawbacks. Uh, a lot of the resentment in Spain from the other clubs is directed towards Javier Tebas, uh, who is uh, you know effectively the head of La Liga, but he's also a very big Real Madrid fan. And oh. um, I think you know, football fans, being the the conspiracy theorists that they are, um, a, a lot of the, their ire is is directed towards that uh, it, it's Tebas trying to make sure that Atleti are, are not competitive against Real. <laughs> well, I love football fans sometimes, don't you? Um, now, our next question comes from Tim Punter, uh, which with all, dis- all due respect, Tim, does sound a little bit like one of Kieran's cricket mates' nicknames, basically. Uh, Tim Punter. Now, this is... Um, I tried to sub this question down, and you'll understand, but I couldn't. And so this is the first question I've ever asked, which takes up most of a side of A4 paper, uh, which I wish I'd seen when I uh, woke up. The, the cat woke me up at quarter to nine to tell me I had a podcast early this morning. Um, but so, no, so bear with me here, because it is a very good question. Um, Tim Punter 
teaches business and economics at A-level and has been exploring with his pupils before lockdown uh, tax avoidance using the example of Nando's and Starbucks who offshore profits by setting up subsidiaries in low-tax countries. Okay, all good. Uh, Then because his kids are into football uh, and he wanted to sort of give football economic models, he talked about the City Group, the people who own Man City, of course, and many other clubs. And his argument is, unlike Starbucks, who need to get revenue out of the UK, Tim argues that the City Group needs to get revenue in to the UK to comply with FFP. So we'll be charging their nine clubs that have franchised a tidy sum for the City branding. However, since making that point, Tim <laughs> says he can't find any actual evidence. <laughs> now, I feel you're paid, Tim. As a stand-up comedian, I don't have to find evidence. I can just make broad claims. But... Um, to be fair, without evidence, Tim, you're not a teacher. You're a bloke in a pub. So is 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 Tim right? Do, do, unlike big companies who want to get revenue out of the UK, do the City Group need to get revenue into the UK for FFP reasons? And are they charging these clubs that they've brought into their franchise to use their branding? Um, I, I don't, I'm not aware of a branding cost. Um, but I, I fully understand where Tim's coming from. Now, if we take a look at the City Group, um, in their most recent accounts, they made an eighty-three million pound loss. Now, the City Group what? consists of Manchester City, New York City, Melbourne City. We've got the club in Uruguay. We've got the club in uh, India. I think there's one in Japan, and they own forty-four percent of Girona, and they've just bought a club in Belgium. Yeah, so, that's, that's, so sorry, it's Kieran. So, sorry, to this is a loss. Across the whole group, a loss across the whole group of eighty-three million. But when you look at the Manchester City part, Manchester City made a profit of ten million. Right. So I, it, I don't think they're necessarily trying to transfer money into uh, in, into Manchester, but it could be that you could transfer costs out of Manchester City and into some of the other clubs. So if we take a look. Um, at Manchester City's role within CFG, Manchester City generate 85% of the income, but they've only got 79% of the wage costs. So some of those wages are effectively, I'm not saying they're being parked elsewhere, um, but uh, you know, it, you'd expect those two figures to perhaps be a wee bit closer. If you take a look at the number of employees at Manchester City, Manchester City got around about 450 employees, Manchester United have got over a thousand. Liverpool have got around about nine hundred. You've got Chelsea having you know seven hundred, seven hundred and fifty. So why is it that Manchester City have got so fewer employees compared to their peer group in in the big six? Now the cynic would say, uh, and I'm not a cynic, um, and also this is perfectly legal, of course, is that some of those jobs are effectively being undertaken or shared by the other elements of the City football group. So therefore, City aren't bearing all of those costs. Um, One way you can sort of transfer money into Manchester City is through um, what we refer to as as transfer pricing in in respect of the likes of Nando's and Starbucks. Um, And if we take a look at uh, Aaron Moy, um, Aaron Moy was playing for uh, Melbourne City, um, he then got a, effectively a free transfer to Manchester City Football Club. You know, he's, he's a talented player. Yeah. 
Uh, Aaron Moy, don't think he ever played for Manchester City, or if he did, it was only one or two games. But he went out on loan to Huddersfield Town. Uh, Huddersfield Town then signed him at the end of the season for £10 million, and Manchester City booked all of that profit themselves. So here we've got a, a player who grew up in Australia, was discovered by an Australian team. The Australian team sold him to another part of the group and made no money. And Manchester City booked all of the profit when they then sold it, sold Aaron Moy to Tuddersfield Town. So is there the scope for such activities? Yes, there are. Um, is it illegal? No, it's not. Uh, does it cause issues for financial fair play? It, it just it, it just muddies the waters even further. Okay, well, Tim, I hope that answers your question. Um, I tried to hang on in there, Kieran, but you 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 threw, you threw quite a few concepts in there, and then of course I just started wondering why you were talking about a Brighton player because yeah, I, I, I never understand why people always turn it around to their club, um, as you will find out when we have the Ron Nodes question at the end of this pod. Um, before that, the penultimate question comes from Paul Glover. Now, Kieran, I think this is an interesting question. Um, one thing that bugs Paul is how clubs like Ajax and Benfica consistently sell their best and usually young players for big fees, but they never seem to benefit by bringing in big names themselves. So what happens to the money is Paul's question. And why isn't it making these clubs more competitive in the transfer market? Now, Ajax had a good Champions League last year. But both these clubs were were giants of the game in the in the seventies and eighties. So, what is happening to the money that they get from consistently selling very good young players that they develop? Well, well, that money is is actually used to spot talent and to develop their academies. If if we take a look at Ajax in twenty eighteen, their revenue was was eighty two million pounds. That was less than Huddersfield. Yeah, in fact, it was wow, really? Huddersfield was one one nine. Right. So they're 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 operating on a revenue which is a third less than the side that finished bottom of the Premier League last season. So we think of Ajax as a big club, and I think that's partly due to the fact that you and I, both being of around about the same age, you know, we remember that Dutch team of the mid seventies. Of course, we remember yeah, yeah. Uh, Benfica in '68 and Eusebio and things of that nature. Um, the, the the problem that both um, uh, the KNVB, the the, the Dutch football organisation, and, and the Portuguese football authorities have is that the TV deals are not very lucrative. So therefore, the only way that they are going to make substantial amounts of money is through uh, UEFA competitions. Uh, so Ajax, of course, did very well in 2019, um, and they doubled their revenue on the back of that. But that's a gamble. You know, get it, Ajax are not going to get to, was it the semi-finals they, they played Spurs in? Yeah, I think? yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, they're not going to get to the semi-finals. And in fact, they might not even qualify for the group stages of the Champions League every year um, because of the way the UEFA coefficients work. Um, Benfica, last season, they got to the quarterfinals of the Europa League. But again, even on the back of that, their income is less than that of Wolves. So oh, wow, you know, okay. what what are we benchmarking these clubs against? You know, I, th- I think we're looking at it from a historical perspective when they were you know fantastic teams that did really well. Um, but because of the way that the money has gone and the money, the money, as we know, is, is very much dictated um, or, or, or dis- uh, 
determined by the size of the TV deals, then um, unless you'd have a very successful TV deal, as we've clearly got in the Premier League, and, and they have to a lesser extent in La Liga, in the Bundesliga, uh, in Serie A, I mean, the, the, the French football deal is pretty ropey. Um, you, you're going to struggle to compete, um, and, and therefore they don't try to. You know, they know that if, if, you're, if you're Ajax, and if you know that your, your best player is going to earn more money at Huddersfield than he is at Ajax, under the present wage structure, you're not going to spend huge monies on transfers yourself because you will simply be um, unable to compete with Huddersfield. Right, yes, yeah, it's slightly depressing. Because, um, I mean, I take Paul's point. If you've got a team like Ajax that are generating, let's say, £70 million on, on selling three really good young players, you, you'd, you'd think that their fans would be wondering why they weren't trying to attract bigger players. But as you say, if they can't afford to pay the wages, that answers the question. But I, I suppose in a way, though, it, it benefits the national teams of those two countries. I know Holland have been in the doldrums, the Netherlands have been in the doldrums a little bit recently. But if, if they're having to produce good young players to stay alive as clubs, that will normally benefit the country, won't it? Yes, very much so. And I think historically, uh, the Netherlands has has punched above its weight. Uh, you know, if you look at the population of the country compared to the rest of Europe, it has had uh, you know a, a lot of success. It's been to three World Cup finals, uh, for example. Um, and, and of course, we all remember some of those amazing teams with the likes of Ruud Hullet and um, you know Ruud van Nistelrooy and so on. So, what what the that the Dutch approach has been is it's uh, you know my, my favourite city is is Amsterdam. Um, it, it is it, it is it's a really... very cosmopolitan approach. <laughs> I think I would have get, I would have taken a punt at your favourite city being Amsterdam. Uh, it is a fantastic city. I actually um, I did try and see Benfica play a few years ago with uh, an old girlfriend of mine. It's not old, old, but ex old. Uh, uh, who did actually speak some Portuguese because she was a, a multilinguist. Calm down. Uh, but <laughs> she, didn't, she, she didn't know enough Portuguese to be able to tell the difference between home and away in the fixture list. So we bowled up, went to Lisbon, <laughs> bowled, up, bowled up to the stadium. And I think they were away. But um, there was still <laughs> – there was still we did have words. There was still um, – I would say there are probably still four or 5,000 Benfica fans here listening to the away game on the radio. So we still got some of the experiences. Lisbon's wow. a beautiful town. But just as you say, for, for people, who are, you know, I just remember the Shibuya kids, Benfica and Ajax, you just want them to be big clubs in Europe, really, don't you? It's, it's, and it's such a shame that they're not. Now, our final question. Now, some of you might have thought I was joking when I said we had a question about ROM modes. Um, and I, I did think long and hard about asking this question because it is quite palacy and it's quite historical, but I think it does still have um, contemporary overtones. And also, basically, if you could talk to your mate from Brighton Police, I think I can talk to answer a question about Ron Nose. And it's a question from uh, Ray Ward, uh, who I'm guessing is a Palace fan. It'd be rather an obscure question if he's not. But uh, uh, Ray Ward says uh, that he's often pontificated, welcome to my world, he's often pontificated with little actual evidence, I hope he's not a teacher too, like Tim, um, that Ron knows was a historical reason why Palace limped from administration to administration because he owned the club and the stadium, but as separate entities. So he took money through rent charges, regardless of how many people we were getting through the turnstiles, and he could force the transfer of rising stars to pay debts on the stadium. Now, Ray basically wants to know whether he's right or wrong. There's, there's no doubt that when Ron Lodes sold the club to Mark Goldberg, but retained the freehold of the ground, it caused huge, huge problems. And 
the interesting thing is that the, the, it does still happen. There are still clubs that are split uh, like that. But Ron knows is Ron knows who still have divides opinions now from Palace fans. He's, he's he left us a long time ago uh, by us. I mean the planet, the world, unfortunately. But um, it, it, at the time, it was really really infuriating because when we finished third in in uh, the top flight. And we all looked to make progress and kick on. He refused to spend money on bringing players in. And in fact, did force the sale of several big name players, replacing Ian Wright with Marco Gabbiadini. Um, but years after that, we kind of thought, well, maybe he was right because he, he was making the club live within its means. And we had Mark Goldberg and uh, Simon Jordan, who probably weren't. So... It, historically, it's hard to know what his legacy is, but that, the idea of a, a man, a, an owner owning the two parts of the club, i.e. the team and the ground as a separate entity, is not a good idea, is it, I don't think? Um, no, and, and we are seeing the separation. I mean, I, I think the issue here for me is, I think Mark Goldberg paid £22 million for Palace yeah. when Ron Nodes had previously been asking for nine. Yeah. So I, I think you know from from the basis of this, Mark Goldberg overpaid, and you know when, when you're buying something, the first thing you do is you check what you're buying. Yeah, you know, this this is why Berry wasn't sold last year because you couldn't work out what you were buying because the, the ground had been divided into so many small elements, um, and you should do your due diligence. So uh, I'm I'm always slightly uncomfortable where um, grounds are being separated from the, the club itself. Uh, I mean, normally they're owned by a, a combined holding company, but if they're not, then, then I'd start to get very twitchy. I mean, certainly Palace, I, I actually downloaded the, the Palace's, Palace's accounts for 2005 and 2006 this morning. Um, and they're paying rent of around about a million pounds a year. Now that was what you know. That was fifteen years ago for Selhurst Park, and you've got uh, you've got the West Ham owners paying two and a half million pounds in twenty twenty yeah. for a sixty sixty thousand pound plus state of the art stadium. Um, you know, it it looks like uh, Ron Nose did what was best for Ron Nose. Yeah, well, I think that's pretty much his his mantra. The, the the thing with Mark Goldberg is really interesting. Is not one Palace fan blames Mark Goldberg for what happened because he, he was a he was a fan. He, he had a bit of money. he was a proper Palace fan. He's one of the nicest blokes you could meet. He was a proper Palace fan who had a bit of money and did what we would all think we would do if we get a bit of money. He bought his football club, um, and 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 every Palace fan goes, well, that's what I would have done. Um, and we would probably ended up bankrupting the club as well. But you know, he also had uh, Terry Venables was was still sniffing about, and it it just shows that you 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 as you say you have to do due diligence because the sums involved back then they seem small now, but back then, as you say, paying twenty two million pound for Palace seemed like a ludicrous amount of money, even to Palace fans. But he had twenty two million quid. Why would you not buy your favourite football club? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's I think it's every fan's dream. Um, I think I think one of the things we've found out over the uh, yeah the time we've been doing the pod, it's not actually the cost of buying the club that's the issue. It's the cost thereafter when when you've got to meet those monthly wage bills and and rent bills. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, Steve Parrish knows, as I've told him every time I see him, that when the money for this starts rolling in and uh, we win the lottery, I will be buying Palace uh, purely so I can change the, the kit back to Claret and Blue Stripes. That, 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 that's probably going to cost me about 250 million quid. But frankly, I think it's worth it. Uh, and that's why people like me shouldn't be allowed to buy football clubs.
Um, so, listen, uh, Kieran, as ever, it's a pleasure to hear your voice. Um, we're working out a system of being out to see each other again uh, next week, which will be lovely because, you know, it's, it's, it's hard enough to read your poker face, but reading your poker voice, it's almost impossible. <laughs> uh, and also the cat... <laughs> The the cat can't hear you with headphones, but so the cat used to really like your voice. So every time she heard you on the, on Zoom, she would come galloping in to say hello and terrify you because suddenly this big black and white fluffy face was appearing <laughs> in front of the screen. Um, uh, so thank you uh, for listening to our uh, questions special. Every Monday is questions. If you have a question for us, no matter how long or how short, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com and we'll talk to you again in a few days' time. Stay safe, boys and girls. The price of football. I'm for the